you believe that one of these days when we get to heaven, that you're going to look back on life and see that the hand of God was more active than what you saw in the moment. That providence was guiding you all along. Heaven is going to reveal a lot of mysteries, isn't it? It's going to tell a lot of secrets, that a lot of things that we didn't understand, a lot of things that we didn't want, God permitted it in His divine providence all along. It's so good to have you in church this morning. We have several guests with us. All of the Lewis's friends have all come at one time, it seems like, huh? I mean, they got a whole row of friends. Somebody had a wedding. Somebody got married, and a lot of friends are in, and so we're so glad to have you. And others of you, thank you for coming, and appreciate you being in the service. Let me mention three things to you just very quickly by way of announcement, and then Jacob will come with some more singing. Tonight is Master's Club Awards Night slash Youth Night slash Fellowship. Uh, the Master Clubs, they had regionals yesterday, and uh, our kids are a good representation of our church. They really represent us well. And they get teenagers, we're not so sure about it, but the kids, we, we, when we have children, we always think that our kids have great potential, great potential, but anyway, uh, they did really, really well yesterday, and so tonight, tonight, it's all kids on the platform. They're leading the singing, they're directing the service, they're going to take over the service, and it'll be structured and organized, Well, the Sumner will be in charge of it, they're going to do, I think some of the boys are going to preach, uh, they're going to do the special music, and so I want you to come tonight and support our young people. And then after the service, we've got fellowship snacks and whatever in the fellowship hall. And I've not been told to announce anything regarding that, so I'll just leave it at that. And if I'm supposed to announce anything, somebody slip me a note before the end of the service. This coming Tuesday night, we're going to have another work night at Victory Baptist Press. We did this about three weeks ago. Had a great showing. And so this Tuesday night, uh, we'd like for you to come 7 o'clock and help us to collate Bibles. If you've never been over there, it is a good opportunity to come and to see what we are involved in. Just finished printing a truckload of English Bibles and trying to get those together. And so this coming Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. And then next Sunday, I saw it on the calendar, next Sunday there is a bridal shower for Lucy Lewis. Is that right? Is it next Sunday? Next Sunday at 3 o'clock, I do believe it is. And... Uh, is, is she registered anywhere, or she just wants stuff? Amazon. Amazon. Everybody's registered at Amazon. You can buy a house on Amazon. You buy everything on Amazon. And so you ladies, this coming uh, Sunday at 3 o'clock. Piano is coming Wednesday, Lord willing. Lord willing. We bought a piano last week, as you know. And uh, Tuesday, we got somebody to come and look at this one. Somebody's going to come and look at this one. And then Wednesday... Lord willing, you'll be out of town, won't you? You'll be out of town, but we'll have the new piano. And uh, praise the Lord for that. I think we've got about $10,000 that has come in this week for that. If you weren't here last, Wednesday, last Sunday or it caught you by surprise and you were not prepared and you want to give toward that, that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, just put it in the offering box and mark it piano. But Wednesday, Lord willing, we will have a new Piano, Yamaha, is it Yamaha? It's a Yamaha, it's a great piano. Looking forward to it. Stand with me if you would. Jacob, let's sing one song and then we'll have a special. Number 507, Come Thou Fount. Number 507.
today, and you'll take your Bibles by in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, if you would. The Gospel of John, in the 12th chapter, and I was just handed a note. Finger foods for fellowship, boiled pans are in the lock. I'm getting a sign from you. I, I, I put it on exactly as it was given to me. So y'all hold on here a second. Where's, where's it at? Oh, it's down here. Let me try this, see if this works. How's that? You like that? See, I thought it was your fault. <laughs> I'm getting ready to fire you. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Did y'all hear that announcement? Finger foods for the fellowship tonight. Foil pans are in the lobby. All right, make sure that we have that. All right, John chapter 12. We are going through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. And uh, we last week we were at the triumphal entry of Christ. And I want to pick the story up in John 12 and verse number 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. If you consult a harmony of the Gospels, you'll find that John spends more time of his telling of the crucifixion week in the upper room than he does anywhere else. The week leading up to the crucifixion began with Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the throngs of people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. The raising of Lazarus had so stirred up the people that they just knew that he was the Messiah. Except for them, Messiah meant a conqueror, someone who would drive the Romans out. Jesus has come into the city riding on the colt of an ass with a large crowd following him only to be greeted by an even larger crowd at the entrance of the city. And this begins what is often called the Passion Week. And when you consult the other three Gospels, you'll find that when Jesus comes riding into the city, he goes directly to the temple where he drives the money changers out. This is the second time that he does this. His popularity is so high with the people that he can do that without being arrested because the religious Leaders are in a conference room somewhere trying to decide what they're going to do about their Jesus problem. 
And it is at this visit that the Lord gives a number of parables that are not recorded in the Gospel of John. There is the parable of the wicked husbandman, the parable of the wedding garment, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents. It is here that Jesus gives that blistering rebuke of the Pharisees that you read in Matthew chapter 23. It is most likely that it is at this visit that Jesus observes a widow woman giving two mites in the offering plate. And there are several days of activity perhaps with Jesus coming and going in and out of Jerusalem. But John omits most of what takes place in that period. You will notice in John chapter 13 that we move immediately into the upper room. And that scene in the upper room is so moving to John that he'll spend the next five chapters describing that final supper with the Lord and that final conversation in that private meeting between Jesus and the disciples. And so, so much takes place between the triumphal entry and the upper room several days, but John leaves all of those events out of his narrative except one. In all of this activity, John records only one incident that is not told in the other three Gospels. There was a very quick mention of some Greeks who have come to Jerusalem for the feast and they desire to meet Jesus. And Jesus has a rather strange reply to their request. No doubt we would have had these men saying the sinner's prayer within five minutes. We would have immediately walked them down the aisle and would have them in the baptismal pool by tonight. But Jesus does not lead them in a sinner's prayer and he doesn't say anything to them about how to go to heaven when you die. In fact, I'm not even sure that Jesus met with them. They approach Philip, who with Andrew, come and tell Jesus, but in the text it's left open-ended. Jesus does not bring them to him. He does not go to them. Instead, Jesus launches into a conversation about living and dying. But you never hear from the Greeks again. There's nothing else said about them. And so the story is left unresolved as it is. Now, most sermons from this passage is going to take the phrase that is found in verse number, uh, verse number uh, 21, Sir, we would see Jesus. And you can take that text and you can preach on Jesus all day long and that would be good. But there is something deeper in the story and in the response of the Lord than just a preaching text. And I want you, I want you to visit the scene with me this morning. You'll have to think for just a little bit. But I want to make three applications from this lone incident that John records during this time. And the first thing I want you to notice is that there is a dispensational aspect to this story. There is a dispensational aspect. Here's what I mean. There is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament that when God chose Israel as his elect people, he intended for them to be a missionary nation. It was his purpose that all the nations would know him through his people, Israel. You hear that first in the original call to Abraham. I will make of thee a great nation. I'll bless thee. I'll make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 3 that the promises and the prophets and all the advantages of being a Jew is not intended just for Jews alone, but it was to be an avenue of blessing to the world. God intended to bless the world through Israel. But over the centuries, Israel developed a disdain for the nations that were around them. There is no people that have been more abused by other nations than the Jews, and it had served to harden their hearts against the Gentiles. They were prejudiced against anyone outside the world. This hatred for the Gentile nations was, 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 was baked into their national DNA. In fact, whenever they journeyed to Gentile lands and they came back to the homeland, they would stop at the border and they would shake the Gentile dust off of their feet so no Gentile dirt would come into their homeland. You can see a microcosm of it in, in the spirit of, jo of Jonah who, who was so upset, the Jewish prophet, that got mad when there was a Gentile revival, so upset that he wanted to die. And so when Jesus comes the first time, he comes to an apostate nation. Judaism was a shell of what it should have been. It was a religion that was full of empty rituals and, and ceremonies. And so what Christ does is he calls them to repent as a nation. John the Baptist comes on the scene telling them to, to, to repent and to show forth fruits of repentance. The Messiah is calm, and if they would receive the kingdom, then they must repent. But not only did they not repent, they did not receive Christ as their Messiah. And though the people are right now waving palm branches, crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, in just a few days they're going to be crying, crucify him, crucify him. That is why last week I said that the reception is actually a rejection because when they learn that he is not the kind of king that they want, then they turn against him. It's not reception, it is rejection that you are seeing. Furthermore, we know that when the Jews rejected Christ and crucified him, God set them aside for a period of time. And during that time, God will call another people out, the church, and they will replace Israel as a nation of missionaries. It is still God's intent that all the nations know him, and since Israel failed in their mission, the church will fulfill that great commission. That is why when you come to the book of Acts, there is a transition that's taking place from a Jewish body to a Gentile body. I want you to see it if you'll take your Bible and look at Acts chapter 13. For just a minute, Acts chapter 13. And I want you to see how this transition is taking place because it has bearing what's happening with these Greeks. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 45. Paul has come into Antioch of Pisidius on their first missionary journey. He preaches first in the Jewish synagogues, as will become his pattern. And true to form, the Jews do not receive his message. Well, the Gentiles heard it, and they asked Paul to preach to them on the following Sabbath, and the entire city turned out for the sermon, and the Jews become envious of that. So in verse 45, here's what he said. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. That's Jews. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, 
I've set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There's a transition that has taken place. You'll find it in Acts chapter 10. We'll not turn there. But Peter, by a vision, goes to Caesarea, preaches to Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. He gets saved. His whole entire household gets saved. But the Jews, the Jews that are in Jerusalem, the, the leaders of the church, they are so upset by this that they have to have a special conference to determine, can we allow this? And Peter, the most Jewish of them all, has to conceive that what I saw the Holy Spirit do among the Gentiles is the same thing that I saw him do among us in Acts chapter 2. In fact, many years later, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul would say that God doesn't even recognize nationalities anymore, for there is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, Romans chapter 5, if I could pick this passage up, Romans 15, I'm sorry. Look at Romans 15 and look at verse number 8. Romans 15 and verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, that's Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written for this cause, I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there should be a root of Jesse and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. And him, are you getting the message? In him shall all the Gentiles trust. So Israel rejects Christ and God rejects Israel. Jesus knew that when he came into Jerusalem that the people waving the palm branches and crying Hosanna, he knew that they were not true disciples. He knew that it was a superficial, it was a shallow reception and that he would be crucified by that very crowd. And when the nation made their final rejection, God would begin a program with the Gentiles. Come back to John 12 because what we have in John 12 is an anticipation of the program of God for the Gentiles. Now here's an amazing thing for you, that God will use the disobedience of Israel to take the gospel to the world. He could not reach the nations through the obedience of Israel, so he will reach the nations through the disobedience of Israel. And there will be an innumerable host that will come to Christ but it will not be through the Jews. It will be through the church. You say, all right, what does that have to do with the Greeks? Look right here. Rejection by Israel, acceptance by Gentiles. And John places this lone event right next to the triumphal entry to contrast the two. There will be a great harvest of Gentiles, souls coming to Jesus. And these Greeks coming to Jesus are seen as an anticipation of the program of God for the church age. Now, we don't know much about these Greeks. They're in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And though they had heard of Jesus, they had never met the Lord Jesus. I am going to assume, it is assumption only, I'm going to assume that they were God-fearing men. Doesn't mean that they were saved. 
They have come, the Bible says in verse number 20, they have come to worship at the feast. They are perhaps Jewish proselytes. They are seekers of God, and the closest they have come to find him is in Judaism. They have come looking for God with an open heart, and it has drawn them to Jesus Christ. For some reason, they approach Philip requesting an interview with Jesus. Some commentators say that Philip and Andrew are Greek names, and perhaps the reason they came. You do remember in history that Alexander the Great, the original Greek, his father's name was Philip, so it is a Greek name. And I don't know what they believed about Jesus, but they desired to see him. I'm not going to preach anything beyond the text. So I cannot say that the Greeks got saved if they were even taken to Jesus. In fact, I tend to believe that they were not taken to Jesus. I tend to believe that the request was denied, and, and, and I have reasons for believing that. But, but the point is, is that it's giving you a forward glimpse of the... Do you see that? It's giving you a forward glimpse of the program of God. The Pharisees are hiding somewhere in a conference room trying to decide how we are going to kill him. Rejection is entering its final stage, and here come Greeks coming to seek Jesus. It is the picture of the dawning of a new dispensation. And, 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 and I get excited about that because thank God that his program was not just for the Jews, but for Thank God that he also invited Gentiles all the way from the beginning. His plan was to include Gentile dogs into his family. If you're a Gentile, you want to say amen right there. That got you in. In the Old Testament economy, then Gentile could come to God, but he could only come so far. He could come as far as the court of the Gentiles, but he couldn't go in where the sacrifices were actually made. He had to stand afar off because he's not part of the covenant people. And I think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. Ye who sometimes were afar off, off are made nigh. He has broken down the middle wall, a partition between us. God has broken down every barrier so that you and I, who are far, far away from God, without the covenants, without the promises of God, without God, without any hope, but He has broken down the wall, a partition, and those of us who are far off are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is not even the good preaching point, and I'm already enjoying it as a dispensational aspect. There was a day when you were on the outside looking in. Some of you, some of you were the most unlikely of all people to be saved. You wasn't even a candidate, to be honest with you. You didn't deserve anything. You were a stranger to the goodness of God, but you found out through Jesus Christ that you could be brought into the family. You were as far away from God as you possibly could be, but now you are as close to God as you possibly can be. It's a dispensational aspect. But then secondly, there is a doctrinal analogy in the text. I am not sure what Philip and Andrew thought Jesus would say, but they didn't expect what they heard. Now again, we would have given an invitation. Again, we would have signed them up. And I'm not, I'm not against that. But Jesus doesn't tell them 
how to go to heaven when he doesn't tell them any of that thing. In fact, he doesn't even acknowledge the request. Instead, Jesus starts this conversation about living and dying. He gives this parable of a corn and wheat dying so that through its seed, it can live, but that seems a little bit off topic, to be honest with you. What's that got anything to do with them wanting to see Jesus? But as you read further on, we discover that Jesus is actually talking about his own death. He says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. In verse number 24, when he talks about this corn of wheat falling into the ground and dieth, and when it dieth, it bringeth forth much fruit. He's referring first to his own death and how that by dying, he will produce much life for sinners. You remember the crowd cried, Hosanna? Literally, Hosanna means save now, save now. He can't save now. If he doesn't go to the cross, he can't save. In order for them to save, he must first go and give his life for them. And when Jesus said the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, he's speaking of his death. Right. I, I, look, look in verse number 32. If I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. They wanted him to conquer and initiate the kingdom, but he's saying there can't be a kingdom unless I die. If Jesus had not died, heaven would be empty of sinners. So he's teaching a doctrinal truth. There is no salvation. There is no putting away of sin, made possible only by his death. If there is to be any life for you and I, there first must be death. And he illustrates that with this analogy of the seed planted in the ground. Only when the seed is planted in the soil, the shell decomposes and the seed rots and then life comes out of it. That little sprig comes out of the ground. You've, you've grown a garden. You know that the root goes down and the blade of grass comes up. And he says, that's exactly how my life is. He says, until I am placed on that cross and I die, there'll be no life for the sinner. But just as one seed dies and a hundredfold of fruit is produced, so by his death, for the last 2,000 years, there have been a harvest of souls that's come from that one death. So there is a doctrinal analogy. But I, I want to move, move to the third application, and this is where I want to spend my time. There's a dispensational aspect. I, I see that. and There's a doctrinal analogy there is a devotional application. Jesus gives this guard and discipleship, and then he turns the conversation toward discipleship. He precedes the illustration with a reference to his own death. That's in verse number 23. But he follows the illustration by talk of following him. That's in verse number 25. And in this analogy, there are three principles that define the Christian life. And here's what I want to say to the church. Following Christ, true discipleship, it is so much different than what you find in the Western church and modernized Christianity. Because the leading preachers of the day would have you to believe that if you'll follow Jesus, that it is the surest path to health, wealth, and riches, and power. 
But Christ is going to define discipleship and following him in far different terms. But in so doing, he's going to give you the secret to living that life. I want you to notice, first of all, that to be glorified, you must suffer. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now that's interesting to me. It's interesting to me that he didn't say, the hour has come that the Son of Man should die. It's clear in the context of the passage to me that he is talking about his death. It is his death that is in view. We know that when Jesus dies, we know he's going to be buried, raised again, right? Forty days later, ascended back to heaven, and then be glorified at the throne of the Father. But that's not going to happen for a while. The hour is come right now. Right now, the hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. It's not time right now to have the glory that you have with the Father from the beginning. No, no, right now, you're going to a cross, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to die, and Jesus calls it being glorified. Now, that's strange. Because we look at the cross as shame. Even Hebrews says that he endured the cross despising the shame. We, we look at that cross and we, say, we, we, we see disgrace and we see shame. And, and, and we don't see any glory. We, we, we see him despised, spitting the men, stricken. We, 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 that's, what, that's what we see. But I want to tell you something. When we look at him on that cross... And we appreciate what he's done for us. We love him and we adore him. And the Father glorified him. And the angels around the throne glorified him. And this morning we glorify him because of what he did. <laughs> he's getting ready to go to that cross and receive glory. The most glorious thing you've ever seen is that bleeding, wounded Savior on that cross dying for our sins. Isn't it strange that we sing songs about somebody dying and we shout? We sing songs about him dying and bleeding on a cross and we weep. Somebody gets up and sings about him on the cross dying and, 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 and some of us want to raise our hand and say a little hallelujah and a glory to God and a praise the Lord. You know what we're doing? We are glorifying him. Through his suffering, through his suffering, he receives glory. That's a hard truth when you turn it around to us. Because life is hard and it is full of suffering. And sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. And sometimes somebody else causes us. And sometimes it is because we live in a cursed world. And we do everything that we can to escape suffering because there is no pleasure in suffering. But sometimes it is in the school of affliction that we learn the most valuable lessons of life. It is through suffering that we learn to lean upon God. It is there that we find the grace of God. It is there that suffering sanctifies us and it purifies us. And the furnace of affliction burns out the dross and refines us as a worthy vessel for the master's use. And suffering causes us to lose the lust of this world and to lean more and to long more for Christ. And as Christ was glorified through his suffering, so you and I are glorified through suffering. Listen to what Peter said. The God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while. 
make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Is it not true that the sweetest, most gracious, Christ-like Christians you know are those who have been through the fire? Is it not? Some Christian who has never suffered, who has never been in the furnace, he's full of pride and he's full of egotism. He's arrogant and he's boastful and he's disdainful of you and he don't know grace and he doesn't know mercy. But after he's gone through a lifetime of fire and suffering and pain and injustices, I'm telling you, after he's gone through that, there is a glory about his life. But to have that glory, you have to go through suffering. There's a second principle that he teaches us, and that is to live, you must die. Look at verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. A seed has life in it. But for the only way for that life to be produced is that seed has to die. As long as it remains in the packet or on the book or in the bucket or on the shelf, then it lies dormant. And a seed can remain like that in the right environment. It can stay like that for years without ever anything coming out of it. But if anything's going to come out of the seed, it has to die. You, you know that when you plant a seed in the ground, it dies, right? You know that. You know that after time that the shell of that seed, it decomposes and comes off. And that seed, it dies and it rots. But as it dies, there's a little sprig that comes out of it. Root grows down and you go out one morning and there's a blade of grass that has come up. Every stalk of corn, every stalk of wheat comes out of a grave. Every beautiful flower grows out of a grave. A seed was buried for that flower or that plant to be born. And as long as it does not die, it cannot produce any fruit. But when it dies, it becomes fruitful. I know this is strange talk. I, I know this is. But Jesus uses that analogy of, of life through death to teach us something about following him. And it is that if you would find your life, you must lose it. If you would live, you must die. He's not talking about physical death, but death to you, death to yourself. De death to your ambitions. You can live to yourself and be unfruitful. You can live for your ambitions and, and your pleasures and your self-interest and, and your passions and you will have no fruit. That's all that you will ever be. But to live, you must be willing to die. I, I think about the Apostle Paul again in Philippians chapter 3. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but done that I may win Christ. What Paul is saying is I don't want to live my life just for myself. I want to be like a corn of wheat that falls into the ground and when it dies in order to bring forth fruit. And if you insist on keeping your life, you will eventually lose your life. That's what Jesus is saying. But if you're willing to lose your life in Christ, allow him to take your life and to make of it what he wanted to be, you will find your life. There's nothing wrong with success in life. 
But there are some men that desire success so strongly that Jesus Christ is second place in their life. Nothing wrong with possessions and wealth and riches and promotion. There's nothing wrong with that. But there are some men, some men that are so driven by that that Jesus Christ becomes second in their life. The determining principle of fruitfulness in the Christian life is that you must be willing to die. And to the extent that you die is to the extent that Christ can live in your life. Death to your pleasures and death to your passions and death to your desires. As long as the seed remains on the shelf alone, it has absolutely no purpose. The only way is for it to come off the shelf and to go on the ground and for it to die. And most people live all of their life like that seed on the shelf. There's no real life for them. There's no fruit that is produced in their life. And you go out in the garden and you see those plants coming up in the morning and you know that something is living and you come out the next morning and they're growing and there's more plants and you know that there is something living there. But through the night, there has been death there as well. That is a graveyard is what it is. And for their life to be growing, something has to die underneath the ground. And it's such an important principle that God wove it into the DNA of all of life. All of these animal rights, wacko environmentalist groups that don't believe you ought to kill animals for the good of man. Did you know that for animals to live, plants have to die? If a man has to live, animals have to die. God has put the principle in all of the world that for one thing to live, another thing must die. All life comes from a place of death. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Here, here it is. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, all about death and resurrection. We talk about the dead body and the body decays in the ground. But in the resurrection, those who have been saved will be raised up in the new body, glorified and perfect. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 36. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of weed or of some other grain, but God giveth a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. He says when you plant that, that grain of wheat in the ground, that grain doesn't come up but something greater and something more. And you can't have a resurrection body until the body is buried. So to live, you must die. But there's a third principle in my text, though, that he is teaching us, and that is to keep your life, you must lose it. Look at verse 25. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Now that goes against human nature, doesn't it? Because we want to preserve life. We want to hold on to what we have. We want to keep it for ourselves. Paul talks about in the last days, there will be some who are lovers of their own selves. I love my life. I, I, I love my sin. I, I love living the way that I live. And I'm not saying that you have to hate your, your family or hate your school. or hate you. that, That's discontent with, with your station in life. But what I am talking about is hating your sin. Hating the passions of life and, and living for your own selfish gain. Remember, Jesus is talking to these Greeks, to Philip and Andrew, and, and, and he's telling them something that, 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 that would shock them. This is not what they're expecting to hear. And if they go back to the Greeks, here's what they're going to say. We spoke to Jesus, and he said to tell that if you want to live, you've got to die. 
If you want any glory, you got to suffer. And if you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. If you want to, if you want to live, you got to die. That, that's what Jesus says to them. And this is so foreign to westernized Christianity. Most people sitting in church people don't get it. This is deeper life stuff here. This is about as deep in the Christian life as you can possibly get. Here it is. Death to self is a fruitful life to God. You want others to see Jesus in you? You want to really know Jesus Christ, experience his presence? You really want to see that? Then die. You want an honorable, fruitful, glorified life? Then die. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, where are we going? We're going to die. That's the only thing that you do on a cross is you die. Not, not martyrdom, not, not physical death, but death to self in my ambitions and death to my offenses and death to my injustices. Well, they offended me, die. Well, I, I, I'm mad and upset, die. Well, I was served in injustice, die. It's an invitation to die. Doesn't go over real well, does it? A little heavy for Sunday morning, I understand. Tonight we've got Master's Club. The kids will be wonderful. I, I am right now in a contract dispute with a company right now that is engaged in some predatory business practices. What that means is they're crooks. And from their Better, better Business Bureau rating and Google reviews, They've crooked a whole lot of people, and I'm next. And I don't know, it looks like that I'm probably going to have to take them to small claims court and uh, try to find a remedy through that. And I'm going to be honest with you, in the last few days, I have spent untold hours thinking about it, fretting over it, what I'm going to say, what lawyer I'm going to get, playing the lawsuit over and over in my mind, if it has to go to that. I mean, I mean, they're wrong to me. They're trying to. And, 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 and I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a Quaker. That's what the courts are for. I understand that. Right. But I'm going to tell you something. In all of my fretting, I haven't been living. Does that make sense to you? Yes, I have every right in the world as, as a citizen and, and as a partner in business, I have every right to take whatever legal remedies are available to me and not be defrauded by a crooked company, and I plan to do that. But in all the time that I have been stressed out over it and depressed and mad, I have been dying. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no living in fretting and preserving and keeping and making sure I'm not wronged and and make sure that I'm right. I, if I was to live that life every day, I would lose the life that I have. I don't know if this is getting over. But what he has done is he has invited you to die. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. The word death, dying, die shows up 17 times in this chapter. There's a lot of death in Romans chapter 6. Paul talks about the death of Christ. He talks about how we've died. We have we shared in that death, how we are to die to ourselves. There's a lot of dying, 17 times. But look, if you would, in verse number 21. What fruit had ye then in those things? Whereof you are now ashamed. 
For an end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting. Death, death, death. Die, die, die. Dying, dying, dying. Seventeen times. But at the end of all of that death is a fruitful life. If you'll die to self and if you'll die in Christ, if you'll allow Christ to live for you, you become a fruitful Christian is what you become. There's a final thought that he gives us in this passage. And that is to be honored, you must serve. Come back to our text, verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. The world is full of men jockeying for the top position. Crawling over one another, dog eat dog world, trying to reach another rung in the ladder of success. I want to lead, I want to be first, I want to make the name for myself, I want to be served. Jesus said, if you follow and serve me, my father will honor you. If you will make much of Jesus, the Father, the Father will make much of you. I found that to be true. Of men and women who give their life to Jesus and try to live for him. And Jesus has given them such an honorable life. He says, if you'll serve me, God will fill your life with beauty and honor and grace and glory. Men who live for themselves will give their lives to dishonorable practices and shameful deeds, but a Christian has honor. Can I give you one passage and I'll be done? 1 Samuel chapter 2. That's actually not the first time that phrase shows up in your Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli. He's a priest in Israel who has two profane sons. These men serve with their fathers in priestly duties, but they're crooks and they are prone to steal portions of the sacrifices for themselves. And Eli, the father, knows and he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't correct it. He doesn't stop them. Verse 12 says, The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Eli should have removed them from office, but he is an indulgent, weak father. Look, if you would, in verse number 27 came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, that I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and the mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me. You think more of your sons than you do of me. You think more of your life, your posterity, than you do of me. So verse 29, or verse number 30, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel said, I said indeed that thy house the house of thy father should walk before me forever, but now, change my mind. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
I determined, I determined I'd make your name an honorable name. I determined, I determined that, that I'd, I'd, I'd give you a posterity and a lineage. I, that's what I determined. That's what I set my mind to do. But you didn't honor me. You thought more of your sons than you did of me and be far from me to honor you. He said, I'm, I'm not going to honor you. And Eli, the priest, dies and his two sons die and it ends the lineage there. I'm going to tell you something. Him that honoreth, if you'll honor him, he'll honor you. It's not easy words. Certainly not what the Greeks expected to hear. And it's not the first time Jesus spoke in these terms. You find this teaching in other places than the gospel. And I think very few people ever come to the place where they really understand and enter into what Jesus is saying. In fact, I know that some will leave today and not understand the message. Certainly will not desire to enter into the message. I got a life to live. I have plans and ambitions and dreams and passions and lust, desires. I got sinning to do. No, no, no. We're so earthly bound, influenced by the philosophy of this world, that when we just hear the reading and the teaching of Jesus, it is foreign to us. But for those of us who want to enter into this truth and live the Christ life, we find that dying to self is a daily thing. I'm going to be real honest with you. Can I be real honest with you? I didn't do real good Friday. I'm being honest. Yesterday was a little bit better, not a whole lot. Today, doing better. But the day's not over. Anybody with me? Anybody with me? I'm just being honest with you. I'm being honest with you. There's just some days, there's just some days... I don't die real easy. There are some other days if I can get some good music and hear somebody preaching. I can die that day. Here's here's the miracle of dying. And it comes again. You're not going to make a trip to the altar and get up dead and the flesh never rise up again. But can't you see that Jesus wants you and I to have a fruitful life? Can't you see that Jesus wants to fill your life with beauty and honor and glory and fruit, but that it only comes through dying to yourself? Here's the miracle of it. I'm done. I'm done. Here's here's the miracle of it. You plant that seed in the ground, one seed. And when it comes up, it doesn't come up as one seed. It comes up as a stalk full of ears of corn and full of ears of wheat. Can I say it like this? If it dies, it comes back so much more in its dying than it ever could have been in its living. As long as it stays on the shelf, that's all that will ever be. But if it dies... It becomes so much more than it could be a living. And when you die to self and live unto Christ, when you surrender all of your passions and all of your offenses 
all of your bitterness, when you surrender it all to him, I want the Christ life. He will make of you so much more than you could have ever been. As long as you protect and preserve and keep, that's all that you'll ever be. But in dying, he'll give you so much more honor, so much more glory, so much more beauty, so much more fruit than you could ever produce on your own. Bow your heads with me this morning. An invitation to die. To die. All of my hurts, all of my offenses, all of my injustices, just die. Just die. All of my passions that well up inside of me, Ambitions that have nothing to do with the gospel. Just die. Just die. And he'll make of your life so much more than you ever dream. You hear this morning, you've never been saved. There is life available for you, but only because somebody died. He died on a cross for your sins that you can have eternal life. You ought to come this morning. You ought to come this morning. Find the place of the altar. Let us take a Bible. Show you how to be saved this morning. Have eternal life. Would you come? An invitation to die.